Today's show is sponsored by Essentia Analytics, an award-winning fintech company that provides AI-driven behavioral analytics services to professional investors and allocators of capital. Essentia works with leading active equity investment teams to measure, improve, and promote their decision-making skill and helps asset owners and allocators assess portfolio managers based on demonstrated investment skill, not just past performance. To learn more about their revolutionary approach to unlocking behavioral alpha in active equity management, visit Essentia-Analytics.com. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Claire Flynn Levy, the founder and CEO of Essentia Analytics. I met Claire several years ago when my prior firm worked with Essentia to help us improve our decision-making. The process of having Essentia analyze past successes and mistakes was so insightful that I became a big fan of the product. Accordingly, when I reconnected with Claire recently, I was excited to speak with her about the founding inspiration for Essentia, the concepts of behavioral alpha and providing a helpful benchmark to managers, working with both managers and allocators to help improve decision-making, how Essentia can use all its data to make the software even better over time, and ways in which managers can use Essentia's data to help market their firms. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Essentia Analytics founder and CEO, Claire Flynn-Levy. Claire, I'd love to go all the way back to the founding of Essentia. What was a big idea or inspiration that led you to embark on this journey? Well, I I started Essentia uh, over 10 years ago now, and it was to solve a problem that I had as a fund manager, which was the lack of a data-driven feedback loop on the quality of my investment decision-making. You know, some some people would say, well, you do have a, a feedback loop on <laughs> the quality of your decision making. It's your performance. But that's not actually the case. You know, performance is a measure of outcome. And hopefully it's a function of skill, but it's also a function of luck. And that's why the fine print in every investment ad says past performance is not predictive of, of future. And yet the only thing you can control as an investor is your own behavior. So that's your decision-making, you know, and whether that's decisions that result in a trade or decisions that don't result in a trade, um, it's about making decisions. So to control that, to, you know, get the best returns out of your decision-making, you can, you need to be able to see what about your past decision-making has been working and not working. And that was where I was, you know, coming up dry. I really, what I wanted was the equivalent of sports analytics, but for a fund manager you know, a feedback loop on the things I could actually control. So that's what I built. And so you're about 10 years in. Has the initial vision or value prop changed at all since since then? Or has it been pretty consistent as you came up with that idea and now you're, you've spent 10 years trying to actualize that? Um, it, I mean, the initial vision was to use technology combined with coaching or, you know, humans anyway, um, to help a, a human investor make measurably better decisions. You know, that, that was the goal. And today we do that with over 100 active equity managers around the world. And whether they make measurably better decisions or not depends on how engaged they are with it. You know, and, and uh, what we're offering them is software, you know, data analytics based on their past uh, trading decisions. And then the ability to add context on an ongoing basis to the decisions that they're making and then be able to go back and analyze, okay, so which types of decisions and in which circumstances do we tend to get it right and tend to get it wrong? And that's uh, turned out to be more, well, I I wouldn't have doubted this would be the case, but this wasn't the original uh, sort of plan was that this would be used in marketing. So, you know, increasingly we see that as 
being a big piece of the value add for the the fund manager. It's the ability to explain him or herself and and the process uh, to investors with data and visuals from an independent third party that you know nobody can really question whether these are true or not. Um, so that that piece of it um, has sort of emerged um, as being more important than than I expected. Um, the other thing that emerged relatively early on was the use of nudges. Um, so, you know, originally the, the vision was there would be the software application and you would uh, collect a sort of dossier on every one of your investments in this one application. But that did assume that you would log into it every day. Um, and it seems ridiculous now <laughs> that I ever thought it would be otherwise, but uh People don't want to log into yet another application every day. Certainly fund managers don't. They've got enough to log in <laughs> to. And so we said, all right, let's make the software nudge you. It's And not nudge you in a subtle way, like ping you and let you know, here's a stock that, you, that needs your attention. And here are three questions you've said you wanted us to ask you the next time you were in this situation. And then it's up to you to engage with that. And the people that engage with nudges, it turns out, do outperform the ones who don't. So we've looked at, you know, we have customers who don't, who aren't into that. Um, and that's fine. But the ones who are, who even respond a few times, um, on average, have outperformed the ones who, who aren't by 160 basis points a year of excess return versus their benchmark. So it's like, hmm, interesting. Um, so that, that's a, that was a sort of an evolution. But the the major thing that's changed is that I guess we've come to accept that the majority of fund managers are not necessarily continuous improvers and so are not going to prioritize that as much as to me, it was like, this is a no brainer. Why would you not have this? You know, if you're a professional athlete, you're, you're going to have sports analytics or you're not going to be a professional athlete. <laughs> you know, that's just like table stakes now. So why would that not be the case here? Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons to do with how different institutions work, culture, egos, whatever. People have fiefdoms. There, there, there are reasons. Um, so it's like, okay, how do you help these Firms and these fund managers do what they really should do, which is look in the mirror, because they will be better off. Their firm will be better off. Their investors will definitely be better off. Everyone's a winner. It's a, it takes a little bravery, but how do you make them prioritize that? And that's been about uh, creating a, a peer benchmarking product that is aimed at allocators. Um, so going to the allocators and saying, here, you don't need a ton of information, but here's some information that you don't have today that you would value. Go tell the managers you want them to give us their data so that you can see this information about them. And, and we'll show it to them too. You know, this isn't about, you know, making anybody uh, be on the back foot, but it it's about the fact that an allocator has influence. And so sometimes you need mom and dad to <laughs> tell you how to do the right thing, make sure you do the right thing. It's, it's, you know, I say that to my kids, just like my parents said it to me, I'm doing this for your own good. It's, it's like that. Uh, so that's, so the, now the mission is to make all equity managers want decision attribution analysis, which is what this ultimately is. We're going to dig into a lot of the things that you brought up in, in that uh, response but getting to that engagement and uh, receptiveness or receptivity to the the product, what are the characteristics of a portfolio manager or firm that is open to the idea of being very self-reflective as it relates to decision-making? I mean, I, I think it comes down to, for the at the individual level, it's about, is this person a continuous improver? Like, is it somebody who... It's just like that, you know, sometimes often it will be that they express that elsewhere in their life through sports, you know, maybe they're like a triathlete on the side or they are really into their whoop and their aura ring and their, you know, quantified self devices, you know, they're just like interested in that. 
Um, or, I mean, I was never a triathlete, but I always won the most improved trophy. <laughs> I was always coming from a low base, but I would improve. And that's, that's sort of, it's so deep in my personality that I don't think I appreciated that not everybody else is like that, but the people who are like that, they love this. That's who, that's who um, our customer base, you know, is made up of. It helps a lot if they work for an institution that has um, stability and, you know, psychological safety. Um, often that will be like employee owned or private owned anyway. Um, you know, it, being public changes a lot of things and makes it uh, less secure uh, for the employee. But uh, these are places where you're you're allowed to get things wrong and you're allowed to admit that. You know, it's all well and good to say it, but in practice, can you? Like, it's funny, I just finished reading the that book, The, the Fund, the Rob Copeland book about uh, Bridgewater. <laughs> and it's like radical transparency and being able to log your mistakes and all of these things. Great, except for it needs to be that you don't get fired. <laughs> like that we all learn from this and it's okay. Right. And I see that there are, there are a number of different uh, fund management houses that are like this, that are, you know, places where uh, people are very supportive of each other. And then there are, there are plenty of, you know, on the hedge fund side in particular, uh, you can end up in situations where there, there's not the the organization is not there to help the manager do the best job they can do, it's there to like chop and change the manager if the manager is not delivering, you know, the alpha that that was expected. Um, so yeah, it sort of takes all kinds. But our sweet spot is you know the the firms where they really they care about helping the manager, and the manager is that type of person. I think it makes sense to dig into the product a little more. Maybe you can describe what the essential behavioral alpha benchmark is and how you calculate it. And then we'll talk a little more about how to use it, but just maybe just give us a broad overview of what that is. Sure. Well, so you know, I mentioned we've been, we've been at this for 10 years and we've done um, a lot of sort of um, <laughs> groundbreaking. It sounds a bit cheesy, but it's not been done before, work around um, taking historical trade data, like trading decisions. You don't have to be a trader per se, but like every time that you have uh, you have bought or sold something um, in any amount, taking all of those decisions and assembling those into what we call investment episodes. So those are like the game tape of every idea that you've held in the portfolio. Um, and then we do a bunch of analysis at the episode level about what do your winning episodes have in common and what do your losing episodes have in common. But then we zoom in on what were the constituent decisions that made up that episode. You know, every episode would have a picking decision. You know, you chose this stock versus the index. Um, and that's the, the decision that people tend to focus on. But that's not the only decision. There's a decision about when do you start buying it and how quickly do you get up to size and what size is that? And, you know, how do you manage the size throughout the life of the position and on the way out, when do you get out? How fast do you get out? So every episode will have a series of sub decisions that, that comprises it. And so then we analyze all the different decision types um, and look at them uh, versus what would have been achieved by chance. So in each case, there's a different way of considering that. But um, we try to keep in the behavioral alpha benchmark, what that is, is a uh, peer ranking, basically, where we're taking uh, equity portfolios, long only equity portfolios uh, in the first instance, although we'll do it for hedge in due course. Um, and we're analyzing them across all the different seven different decision types and scoring them on each one. And then that boils up into a single behavioral alpha score and a score of 50 is what would be achieved by chance. Basically the equivalent of for all the different decisions you're making, you get it right the same amount of the time as you get it wrong. And when you do get it right, 
you get the same amount right as you get it wrong when you get it wrong. So it sort of all comes out in the wash. Um, that would be, you know, throwing a dart at a dartboard and an argument for buying an index fund um, if you're the investor. But if you have a higher score than that, what we've found is that people, people who have a higher behavioral alpha score are more likely to score over 50 in the near future than people who scored below 50 in the recent past. It's like it's got more staying power than past performance does. And it's based on a lot more data points, right? Because with past performance, you only, you have 12 monthly, you know, 12 points, data points. Um, that's very noisy and not, not ever really going to be that helpful statistically. But even somebody with a very low turnover portfolio, we look, we look in the behavioral alpha benchmark at a rolling three-year period, they will have enough decisions for it to uh, be statistically significant. Um, so, so this gives, it provides a different lens on manager skill. You know, it's saying rather than just looking at the end product, the performance and trying to work backwards to figure out how much of that was luck and how much of that was skill, where luck is, is the bench, what happened in the benchmark and anything that, you know, is different, that would be the skill. I mean, that is one way to, to do it. And it's the only way if all you have is monthly performance data. But if you have daily, even daily holdings data, you can approximate the, the trades and you can to come at it from the bottom up. And that is uh, just another way of, of looking at it. So, so we started doing this, um, this peer benchmark uh, a year and a half ago, I guess now, um, with just our existing client base um, and, and citing the names of the top five scorers, but not anybody else. Um, and it's been very popular, you know, not surprisingly, the top five scores are very excited about this. And we've started hosting a series of webinars with them, um, really aimed at educating allocators about this whole concept of decision attribution analysis and, and why, you know, why is this going to help you make a better decision on which manager you select? Um, and so it was popular enough that we decided to turn it into a product. So we're this year um, launching, in fact, it's, it's just gone into beta test right now, um, a, a new freemium product based on the behavioral alpha benchmark. Um, so the tool we were using to, to figure out who the top five were anyway is now going to be a product and it will be uh, free to anybody who signs up for it. But the level of detail you get for free is obviously going to be limited. It will just be about comparing your behavioral alpha score with that of your peers. Um, but I'm excited about it, as, as you can hear, because I think it's, you know, we went, we went straight for solving the really hard problem of behavioral change. And how do you help somebody make a measurable, like I held myself to such a high standard in terms of the problem we were trying to solve, because I felt that's a very valuable problem to solve. But actually, sometimes you need to boil it down into something very simple that people can wrap their heads around who don't need to know, you know, maybe they're not necessarily a fund manager, they're a manager researcher, maybe or a wealth manager or somebody who's, you know, who's choosing managers, um, that person needs something simple. And so that's what the behavioral alpha benchmark is uh, enabling us to do. And we're going to talk a little more about how allocators use it, but I'm also curious if I'm a manager and I get a poor relative score, what, what do I do with that information? Well, so the first thing is it wouldn't be uh, public. <laughs> so the in the in the the new product, it will be the case that if your score is over fifty, then you will be you you will be named, and you should be thrilled about that because it means you're a skilled decision maker. You know, this is this is real stuff. It's been published in the Journal of Investing. It's you know the methodology is is legit. So you should be marketing yourself on that basis. Uh, but if you don't score over 50, okay. I mean, no need to call attention to that, but now you know where you are and where you are versus your peers. 
and you can do something about it. I mean, we could help you if you want help. If you, you know, another thing I've learned over the years is like, don't try and help somebody who doesn't want help. But if they do want help, that's where we can, you know, that's that's the hard problem that we solved first. Um, and and not everybody, you know, needs that at that level all the time. So let's just have that there for the people who need it when they need it. And, you know, as long as their data is on the platform, they could turn that on and off whenever they want. And I assume that there's some education required to get managers to understand what the scoring is. And and my guess is the data that you publish in the journal investing kind of gives a basis for the for the you know for the methodology. Maybe you can give us a sense of what that data in the study showed and and how that helps bolster the case that this is something managers should be paying attention to. Um yeah, I mean what we what we've done there. And you're right, the Journal of Investing, it's all about the methodology and just um, outlining or putting that into terms that are um, digestible and, and understandable. But uh, what we're doing is looking at across all the, the seven decision types, picking, sizing, entry timing, and so on. Um, we're looking at for a given manager with a given benchmark, and the benchmark needs to be their stated benchmark. Um, and and that gets interesting when you start sort of going into the ETF world where the stated benchmark is sometimes not what you would consider to be an appropriate benchmark in, a, in the more institutional side of the business. But um, anyway, you take the manager, their, their historical daily holdings data and uh, and the benchmark, and we look at all the different decisions and we look at their hit rate. So that's like their batting average, you know, what percentage of the decisions resulted in positive excess return over the last three years. Um, and then we look at payoff, which is kind of like slugging ratio, but it is looking at the average uh, excess P&L contributed by the winning, the good decisions divided by the average damage done by the losing decisions. So, one of the main findings, um, and then we plot every portfolio on those two axes, hit rate on the X and payoff on the Y. And what we found is that uh, hit rate is very tight. Most people do not, uh, they actually, most people make more bad decisions than good decisions when it comes to trades. Now, that doesn't mean their picking decisions are all, more, you know, they have a, a hit rate lower than 50% on picking. Actually, most of the managers have uh, have a, a high score when it comes to the picking decision. It's all the other decisions that are the issue. You know, the timing decisions, the sizing decisions, the adding and trimming. It's like these are little little sort of death by a thousand cuts that eat away at the at the value add through the picking decision. And so, on balance, you you look at. Uh, their hit rate and it's it's pretty tight um, band somewhere between like 35 or 40 at the very low end and at the high end or you know 62 maybe you know so it's it's quite a tight distribution whereas on the payoff side that's where the difference is made so some people are much better at uh, managing their winners versus their losers as you know than other people are. And so you have some people with a super high payoff, like a, a chance payoff would be 100%. Your, your winners are winning the same amount as your losers are losing. Um, but you know some people will have over 200% and some people will have 60%. Um, so you, you have a much wider uh, distribution when it comes to payoff and and it's why I think payoff is sort of, you know, it's the an unsung hero of fund management that people don't realize that's a huge part of the skill of being a fund manager. It's not just the, how often you, you get it right bit. Um, anyway, and then there are a whole bunch of other findings about, uh, you know, clusters and of, of behavior, but, in the end, it's fund managers are typically good stock pickers 
And the difference between one that makes money and one that doesn't is how they handle their winners versus their losers. And so we talk about those seven different decision types. Are there some common areas where you think managers can more often than not get better? Or does it really depend on the person? I mean, I'm just thinking like maybe adding and trimming is something that just consistently is something for people that, that people have trouble getting right um, versus other things. Maybe, maybe I'd love to hear like your, some anecdotes about that, that data and when we're, where people can get better in those various decision types. Sure. I mean, the, the, we did a study a few years ago that looked across our whole population of managers and, and tried to see like, is there something that everybody does wrong? And the answer is no, there, there is, everybody has something they do that is, um, uh, highly correlated with their alpha generation or destruction, but uh, it's not the same thing for everybody. You know, different people have different things. Where where there are clusters um, that appear, it's often to do with uh, getting out and getting out of losers in particular, you know, and that speaks to loss aversion and, you know, any bias associated with loss aversion, endowment effect, you know, you, sometimes there is a tendency to run a winner so long that it becomes a loser and round trips, you know, and some people have a real, a real pattern around that. And that's having done that, like every fund manager has done that at some point in their life. And, and that's just so mortifying. <laughs> I know from my own experience of that, it's like, Oh, you're just kicking yourself. And, and rightfully so, because, you know, you didn't have to lose that. You, you, you were making the money if you just, you know, asked for the check at the right moment in the evening and not stayed to the birds were singing, you, you would have been better off. Um, so we get, uh, we see a lot of situations like that. Um, and then with adding and trimming, some people add value through their adding and trimming, you know, and they've really struggled to prove that when investors, you know, investors are, are trained to believe that turnover is bad. And so therefore, uh, you know, to assume assume value destruction through adding and trimming, but it's not necessarily the case. For some people, they're actually good at it, and and we can prove how it adds value. But for other people, yeah, not so much. It, you know, the the messing around at the margin is something that they may be doing for risk management purposes. You know, some people still run money like that, like they're they're playing macro risk, you know, using their their fundamental stock ideas. I think in this day and age, that's a dangerous way to manage risk. There's so many other options for how you can manage risks that are less complicated than that and, um, and would save your investors a lot of money. So, uh, but they can, they really struggle if they, if that's how they've done things their entire career, that can be really difficult for them to, let go of, even though it's saying, you know, look, here's how much that risk management technique is costing you, you know, way more than a hedge that you wouldn't buy from your broker, you know? So, you know, maybe consider not doing that. Or maybe this isn't as common, but I, I have seen it before where, you know, all fund managers make an assumption that their conviction, the strength of their conviction is predictive of, returns like why why do you think that would be the case like okay you're smart that's a good reason you've been trained in fundamental analysis okay except conviction such a woolly concept and it means something different to each one of us and the way that we would measure our strength of it varies very dramatically between us so like how about you you start start by taking a step back and looking at is it the case that the strength of your conviction is predictive of whether a stock is going to do well or not. And, and therefore should dictate your sizing maybe because a lot of people say, Oh, my sizing is my is expression of my conviction. Okay. But probably a good idea to test that <laughs> before you commit to it, or at least check in with it once since you've been committed to it for so long. And it may be the case that you're, you're, position sizing is not adding value, that you would be better off with an equally weighted portfolio. And if that is true, 
suck it up <laughs> like you that that is a bit mortifying if you you know there there's a blow to the ego that would happen with that but i've watched somebody go through it he asked to to undergo this and the answer was your conviction is predictive of nothing um but but you are good stock pickers it wasn't so much that um you know whether you like the stock or don't like the stock is predictive of nothing it was the strength of your conviction you know there's a the one that you're a five in is not really different from the one that you're a three in. And so why not have all of them be a four? And uh, and you'll get a better result. You make fewer decisions. So that makes your life easier. And they were fine with it. They were like, all right, yeah, fine. <laughs> and that just, it helped with their performance definitely. But it uh, it was, that's a continuous improver's mindset. You know, whereas somebody who's got a, a fixed mindset would take this as a condemnation of their their value, you know, um, wouldn't be able to, to handle it. I love that anecdote about, you know, how, how someone can get better. So let's just say that I'm a manager and we've ident you identify one of the seven or two of the seven decision uh, points that where, where I'm not doing so well. You guys can come in and, and have what's called a behavioral consulting what do you do? Like, what does that actually look like if you, once you identify where someone can get better, what, what do you, what kind of program do you design for someone? What does that tangibly look like to a manager? Um, well, first we put electrodes on their head. <laughs> joking. <laughs> I'm joking. There are no electrodes are involved in this. We, uh, so it's like, we've done your blood work basically, right? We've, we've done the, the diagnosis and then um, we have, somebody called an insight partner who has been a fund manager before they might not have run the exact same strategy as you, but they've, they're an equity fund manager and uh, they've lived through a lot and they understand the pressure and the sort of what you're dealing with. Um, their job is to go through all the analysis and then come in and sit down with you and have a conversation. Like, you know, that's a doctor sitting down with the test results and saying, all right, so let's discuss these. Now, in this case, it's probably more of a conversation than it would be at a doctor <laughs> where the doctor's like, well, your cholesterol is this. And it's like, okay, what should I do? Um, with this, you know, it's often the case. It's like, so it's saying this, what do you think about that? You know, does that resonate for you? Did you think that that, you know, it's saying that your exit timing tends to be late, particularly, you know, when a stock has been falling for a really long time, you, you've held on for too long. Did you know, do you, did you suspect that's what you were doing? And they might say, no, that's weird. Or they're more likely are like, yeah, we kind of had a feeling we were doing that. So first they need to be bought into what they're looking at as being accurate. And, and sometimes it takes some probing, you know, sometimes, sometimes people's strategies are fiddly or classifications of things are legitimately like, you know, that's not the sector that I would consider that to be in and that type of thing. It's like, fine, let's make sure that the data is reflecting the world as you see it, because otherwise it's sort of pointless. Um, but once it is, it, the, the software has been designed for what we call the yeah buts. So where the manager doesn't like what they're seeing and they're like, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but you, you know, you're not considering something or you shouldn't, you, we should look at it like this. And that's the wrong window to, it's like, okay. This is all adjustable. Let's look at it. Let's we're we are completely objective. We don't have a view on, you know, any of this. We're we just understand what we're looking at and we understand where you're coming from and we want to help you. And that's it. Um, so so we get to the point where they're like, okay, now this is how I see the world and I do understand what it's telling me, even if it's not all good, you know. Um, and then it's like, what what can I do about it? And so the insight partner, part of their role is to um, set up nudges and nudges are entirely opt in. So it's not like you have to do that. For some people, they're just like, do not send me any more email, nudges or email. I don't want it. Okay. Would you like a little icon on your browser that's like a decision journal where you could record some stuff ad hoc when it comes to mind? Yes. No. You know, some people would say, yeah, oh yeah, I want that. Great, we have that. We'll set you up with it. Um, some people are like, just, no. <laughs> like, all right, we're not going to 
expect your your behavior to change on that basis, right? We're going to just assume that it's not. Maybe you do change something else in your process in the back of what you've seen in this data and and it does change. That's great, you know, but it won't be something that we particularly did. Um, and we can't prove anything about that change. Whereas with nudges, we can look at the quality of your decision-making when you haven't been using nudges versus when you have, and we can show you whether it's working or not. Um, and and uh, nudges are very tailored to the individual situation. Somebody who has a tendency to round trip, maybe, will get a an alpha decay nudge, and that might be the central thing for them, where we've pinpointed looking at all their past episodes, where the peak point tends to be in the life cycle of the of the stocks that they're holding. Like, you know, it might or might not be the three-year horizon that they say that they invest to. Um, it could be, but if it, if your stocks tend to run out of juice after, you know, two years, wouldn't you want to know that? <laughs> because you would make more money. Um, so we'll nudge you on that basis. And, and then it's about what questions do you want to be asked? You know, some people would say, well, if I'm in that situation where I've been in a stock for two years and I know that the odds after that start to go against me in terms of the probability of it continuing to outperform, ask me, would I be a buyer of this stock today? That will force me to like go from system one thinking to system two in the in the thinking fast and slow parlance. So it's just about helping them like tee up their actual investment process at a point where historically they weren't they weren't making a deliberate decision. Um, and then we measure, you know, the trades they do on the back of that and see, does it are they better? And they do tend to be, you know, but that's sort of common sense. You would expect them to be. Yeah, I mean, so much of this, having been a fund manager myself, it's like so much resonates and all of the, you see me nodding like, yeah, hey, I made that mistake. <laughs> yeah, I made that mistake. Yep, yep, that's, yeah. that's all those things. Uh, but, but taking a step back, I mean, like the, the one of the most precious things um, to all managers is the data that they generate. And so I can, I can imagine people being a little concerned about data security. How do you ensure that very sensitive performance information never leaves essential walls? Um, I mean, it is incredibly uh, important and it, it's become a barrier to entry in this, in this space, the information security requirements, you know, putting to one side the like, I don't want my competitors to see this data or people who shouldn't see it from the industry. There's hackers, there's, you know, like all the, the InfoSec um, dangers that we all face every day of our lives. When you're serving large institutions that are regulated, which a lot of our, uh, of our customers are, um, they have very high standards around information security. So you have to have ISO 27001 and SOC 2 certification and, you know, all of these things it requires a lot of investment. And I, I think uh, there, that's something I never imagined, you know, on day one, just how much money we would invest into information security. And there's no end to it. So there's that. So we've, and we have built the platform for data to be segregated and there not to be um, uh, a possibility of one client's data getting mixed with another client's data. So that part of it, uh, is is uh, we were very very intentional about, um, but then and and some people still are like, oh, you know, we don't want to send you any data. It's mostly hedge funds where you would see that these days. Most long only funds are participating in model delivery mandates anyway, which is the same data. So you're sending it. I mean, even the hedge funds they're sending that data to the prime broker and the fund administrator. So what's the difference? You know, they, but whatever, they, they make their own decisions. Um, I think uh, more and more the industry, the certainly on the long only side is just, you know, waking up to the fact that like the genie's out of the bottle on the data side. And it's not about people, well, people who want to trade against you if you're long only, they can look at your 13Fs if they're in America and they can they can do it like that. We're not disclosing the holdings of anybody to anybody else. It, the only thing we're disclosing um, in a public way is their behavioral alpha score, which isn't a tradable thing. 
Um, and that's only with their permission anyway. So uh, we, but it, it took a good couple of years of bouncing this peer benchmarking idea off both our clients and the allocators to find the sort of happy medium where it would be valuable to people, but also not too scary to say yes to um, for the manager. And uh, we finally got there. <laughs> and I think one of the elements that I didn't consider uh, when we were working with you was the value of the data that you generate and and and, and that you can analyze to the allocators. Um, so let's say you're sitting in front of an allocator uh, and they have whatever, 50 managers on the public equity side. What what is a value prop? How do you what are you telling them that they need to know that it's really hard for them to get by just, as you said, looking at the returns data? Well, yeah. So today, all they can really do is look at returns data. This is assuming that they don't have segregated accounts. You know, somebody with segregated accounts has daily data, so they could do what we're what we're proposing here. Um, maybe they already do. Usually, they don't. But you know, they might not have even thought about that before. But but they have the data because it's in the segregated account. But for everybody else who is in a pooled vehicle, no, you know, all you get is a monthly performance number. And then you're looking at some benchmark and comparing, you know, that monthly performance, and then maybe comparing it with the average fund manager like that. Um, and that's, I mean, it's helpful for reporting, but it's not helpful. It's not predictive of anything. And it's not helpful on a go forward basis for the manager as a like feedback loop on anything. So uh, and, and it's very confusing, you know? So what we're saying to the allocator is, look, this is a, a bottom-up approach, a totally different dimension and different lens to be looking at the manager through. Not saying bin your performance attribution and your factor analysis and forget all that. No, it, add this, but this is actually predictive in that it past decision-making quality is predictive of future decision-making quality, at least for, for like the next three periods, depending on, you know, what your turnover periods are, but not forever necessarily, but, but for the foreseeable future. And you can't say that about performance or factors or any of that. So, you know, consider at the end of the day, you're paying this person to make, to be a good decision-maker. Are they, you know, you, Maybe they are, maybe they're not. And maybe they have never even asked themselves that question. So also a big part of it for the allocators to say, look, here's a tool where you can you can compare managers on the basis of decision-making quality and say, you know, okay, I want to look at this small cap value manager against other small cap value managers. Fine. Um, but how... does the manager ask, you know, here's some questions to ask the manager. Do they know what their decision hit rate and decision payoff are? Do they think that their entry and exit timing decisions actually matter? Do they know if they're adding and trimming decisions are adding value? And, if, and there's sort of three different types of manager that we've seen. One that says, yes, I do know all of those things. And here you go. You know, and they've been like capturing that information, whether they've been doing it with us or, or you know, on their own. They're just like that. Then you have the ones that haven't been doing that, but they're like, hmm, that's interesting. We should do that. Here's, you know, let me try and approximate. But you know, it's like they're clearly open to it, but just never thought about that before. Um, and then you have ones who say, oh, we don't need to do that. We're long-term. We don't, you know, that's not relevant to us. And their answer to everything is, that's not relevant to me. I mean, that alone... <laughs> tells you so much about the manager that you kind of don't need to even bother doing more due diligence if they're the third one, in my opinion. You know, they, that that manager might have a good performance period and might have a bad one, but you you know, net net, you know that person's not a continuous improver and they're not open to feedback. That's not a good sign. And machine learning and AI are all the rage these days. We've talked a lot about data already. Are there ways in which the data you collect on various managers can be used to make the software even better 
over time. So you like not just an individual manager, but when you have all of this data from everyone else that you can aggregate in a way that makes the software even more precise and more effective over time. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of different um, ways that we can use AI. And we, we've been using machine learning in, in the um, in the way that we do our calculations for a long time, basically since day one. And that was really about saying, look, a fund manager just wants you to cut to the chase. What's it saying? Give me bullet points, right? And that's how I am too, because I was one of those. <laughs> I don't want to have to trawl around finding what is this data saying? Well, you have to change this setting to that, you know, that the insight partner can do that, but the, the user just wants to know what's it saying. And that needs to be, you know, relevant. It needs to be said in a, in a way that makes sense in, to a fund manager. Um, and that is about using uh, machine learning to identify the statistically significant patterns that exist in the data and then using natural language generation to turn that into sentences in English. Um, so we've been doing that for, for a long time. And, uh, and there was a, actually a point where we took, we stopped, we took it out and it was to do with, with we switched to using Tableau as the, as the user interface. Um, on the software and Tableau was harder to, um, it's less flexible, put it that way, when it comes to implementing um, machine learning and, and natural language stuff. So, um, but with this new peer benchmarking product that doesn't exist in Tableau, um, that flexibility comes back. So we'll be reinstating that, um, which means that you can, for a given manager, say you have a tendency to, to do this and that and you know be skilled at this and that, or you could do it across managers and say the you know in general over the last quarter or the last three years or you know however long, managers have tended to do this and that and clusters exist here and there. Um, all of that helps us just like come to conclusions faster and it saves time. So that's helpful. Um, it doesn't necessarily make the the product better. Uh, I mean, kind of in, in its way, but it's not making it more accurate or anything like that. It, but there, there's a good use case around the having it learn from you um, to do with nudges. You know, so right now nudges are, you know, making an assumption about where you are and the, what time zone are you in. You say you, you're based in Southern California, it's going to put you on Pacific time. And if you then come to New York, it doesn't know that you went to New York. And so it's still sending you stuff at you know the wrong time of day. Um, or it might find that you have a tendency to respond to things when uh, put to you in this way, but not that way. Or, you know, when the subject line of the email says this, but not that. Like I have, a, I have uh, lots of ideas for how we could uh, improve the nudge experience using AI, um, but probably even lower hanging fruit between the first one and the second one is uh, to, to, you could use the, you know, a, a natural language, um, you know, like a GPT to um, make it possible for the portfolio manager to sort of converse with their portfolio. So if you imagine you had a little chat bot that you could say, I'm thinking about doing this and you know, I can answer a couple of questions about this thing I'm thinking about doing. Um, what do you think? And the bot will say, well, historically, when you've had an idea like this and you felt like that, you've had this probability of being right. Um, that's mathematically very possible. It's just about prioritizing the, the build of it. Um, so, but I think that would make, that's that's sort of, Ultimately, it's like having a wingman, a little, a little robotic wingman that can uh, help you think. Um, and I think the the ChatGPT stuff is has really lit a fire under that as a possibility. I love that use case. Just having whether no when even if there's not a person sitting there, just having something to help you even if it was a chatbot, help you think about a decision and where you're not making it in a vacuum. I personally would have found something like that really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so if um let's say I have a good behavioral alpha score and uh 
you know, I want to use it to distinguish myself from my peers as a manager. What is your sense of the best practices when it comes to marketing personnel using the Essentia data to better communicate with both existing and, and potential clients? Um, it is, uh, first of all, it's about showing that the organization thinks like this, you know, and is aware, is on the is sort of on the leading edge of things because these allocators have now been hearing about behavioral alpha score, decision attribution analysis, all of that stuff from us for a good few years. Um, so if a firm puts itself forward as a place where, you know, we arm our managers with the best technology and use of AI and, you know, whatever else, um, this is evidence of that. And, and, you know, there are plenty of people who, plenty of firms, I think, that would say that they do that, but do they actually do that? It's a different, different story. Um, and then it's about, you know, the, the narrative of continuous improvement and saying, you know, we have process, we care about our process, we examine it, we continuously improve it, we care about being evidence-based, and so we don't make changes to process without evidence, data evidence to drive those changes. And when we do, that doesn't mean we're changing philosophy. That's a different thing. So, you know, you can stick with a narrative that's about we, we know what we do. We do it the same way. This is our way of generating alpha without saying we never change anything about our process because in this day and age, like really you don't change anything, but that, that would be a losing strategy if I've ever heard one. So, so the, for the product specialist or the marketing person, you know, if you can put your best foot forward on that front and, and show that you are thoughtful about this and using technology and um, in a way that is really creating that combination of human and machine for the, you know, to the advantage of the end investor that it just plays very well. Um, and then it's about showing specific examples, you know, whether that's um, in the context of explaining how you generate alpha saying, you know, we are particularly focused on our sizing decisions and making sure that we get them right. And here's how we know we're good at that. And here's actual proof of us adding value through that. And, uh, and here are some game tapes, you know, of some specific examples where you can see exactly what we were doing. And this is our process in action. That's what it looks like. And that's us succeeding. And here's one of us getting it wrong. And here's what we learned from that. And here's how we made sure that we can't make that mistake again. People love that. You know, it, in the end, I think anybody who expects a fund manager to get it right all the time is delusional. And mostly... Investors just want to hear that the manager understands if what went wrong was something they could have done something about. And if it was, what they're going to do about it so it doesn't happen again. And it can't always be bad luck or, oh, my, my strategy is out of fashion. It's like, that's just not the case. And, and particularly when you're looking at it against a benchmark that is, you know, a value benchmark or a growth benchmark, it's like that excuse is just doesn't hold water anymore. Any product that has so many different value propositions to the constituents in the ecosystem, in this case, including the managers, the allocators, the marketing professionals, I mean, there's just a lot of value add, um, you know, that's got to be attractive. And I know that Northern Trust made an investment in Essentia back in 2021, probably seeing a lot of what I've seen uh, in you and in the product. Maybe you could talk about that relationship and why North, Northern Trust was a viewed as a good partner for you guys. Sure, I mean they. So Northern Trust is a is a you know trusted brand. It's been around for a zillion years, and um, they're very uh, measured in their approach. Very thoughtful. Uh, they did a lot of homework before they chose us. They they knew that they wanted to extend their offering to offer more sort of value added products based on the data that they're already housing for their clients. So that, you know, they're a fund administrator or custodian to a lot of different firms around the world. And that data just sits there, you know, being accounted for and reported on, but there's so much more you could do with that, right? And so 
they created an, an investment data science strategy that involves partnering with firms like us and saying, all right, we'll give you data access. Um, and in return, uh, you, you know, you let us sell your product in the context of our overall offering. Um, and that is, um, great. I mean, that, that works well in, in, uh, both in the, in the case where you're packaging up decision attribution analysis as part of a, a larger product set that, that Northern is offering its client base. Um, but also more over from our perspective, when it comes to peer benchmarking, they have huge reach amongst allocators, um, probably more allocator clients than manager clients. And so this is really about how do we get in front of as many allocators as possible and make it really easy for them to, um, to sign up, you know, and if they have segregated accounts, they can send us data themselves and do this analysis themselves. If they don't, then it's just about getting them to influence a manager to give us the data. And there's a question that we always ask founders and people who have, uh, are building businesses about whether their business is, you know, kind of being built to be sold or, or built to stand alone. So are you, do you think that this business could really benefit from being owned by a strategic partner? Or do you have a clear path to creating value for your investors as a standalone business? Um, I, I mean, I think ultimately this will be part of a of a strategic partner. Um, it's not impossible to try to turn this into the next, you know, broader analytics platform. But but you'd have to go much broader um, for that to make sense. Whereas I think what we're doing is it's novel to people who've not been paying attention to it. It's like in a post. Uh, you know, first you had factors and you have ESG, like the, the industry jumps on things. My prediction is that behavioral is the next one. And decision attribution is, is the thing that people jump on next as being must have in, in the sector. And, uh, and so that's an offering as, uh, you know, that's part of a larger product portfolio probably. Um, and we do, we're having some really interesting conversations with different uh, potential partners, not just from our sort of more traditional space, but also in the in the wealth space, where you know you have a lot of people who are trading um, ETFs. They might be active ETFs. It's not necessarily you know that that line of ETF means index fund. No, it doesn't. ETF is just a wrapper. It's a package, and and more and more active funds are becoming you know ETFs or being launched as ETFs, and so. Uh, you have wealth managers who are buying and selling these things. Um, and, you know, they don't deal with the same service providers that the institutional fund managers deal with. So it's, it's been fascinating learning about that side of the market. And if we're having this conversation again in seven years, what would success look like to you? Um, it would be that Essentia is part of a larger company with a broader offering, but that has a culture that is aligned with ours. And that is like super important to me. <laughs> a big thing that is amazing about Essentia is our culture. And, you know, it's hard to, to not sound like a cliche saying it, but ask anybody who works there and they'll, they'll tell you. So the idea of, um, of you know where where would we where would Essentia be at home? It, it would be somewhere where where culture matters, um, and that's you know not that easy to find necessarily in the finance industry. Um, but also, regardless of that, the um, I'd like to see the behavioral alpha score be as ubiquitous as a sharp ratio or you know factor analysis or, or anything like that. I think it should be a must have. And I will not feel like we've succeeded until it is. Uh, will that take seven years? I don't know. I'd like to think it would be faster than that, but it's been 10 years already. So 
you just keep on going. Um, yeah, but it just, it, it makes so much sense. And as the new generation of managers starts to sort of ascend into leadership positions, it's like better and better received. Um, so the market's definitely moving in this direction. I could see that. I mean, I think there was an old guard that may have a different perspective on data and technology. And we all know um, that the, especially investment management industry is not usually the most tech forward uh, group of people. So um, no. I could see there's a, there's a long learning curve and an adoption curve. And so we'll close this podcast with the question we ask all of our founders and CEOs. I think you almost just, just discussed it a little bit in that response, but what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of the opportunity Essentia has in front of it? Well, I mean, actually, I think the, the most misunderstood bit or the most sort of nobody's noticed bit is to do with daily data. And daily, the, in my mind, daily data is a game changer, daily portfolio holdings data or, or granularity of trade data. As a manager, it's a game changer for your ability to see what you're doing well and not doing well. And you've had it this whole time, but whether you've had it in a form that you could do something with, or you had the right tools to do that thing with it, you know, that may or may not have been the case, but more and more managers, you know, there's been a lot of investment that's gone into data lakes and, you know, warehouses and the like. So people's data is getting more and more organized, which is good. Um, and then you have these, these trends like model delivery and active ETFs and separately managed accounts that are going on in the wealth space um, that are basically managers are selling their data, whether they realize that that's what they're doing or not. The, certainly with model delivery, they realize like our IP is our trading decisions. And they're, they, those people just want to buy our IP. They don't want us to execute. They don't want us to you know, do anything else. They might even be putting an overlay on top of us and doing, you know, something to, to tailor our ideas into the product that their customers want. But all we're really selling them is our ideas. And, you know, as I say, the genie is out of the bottle. You already sold that. That data is already out there. So lean into it. You know, you could hide and hope that nobody analyzes it, but that's not very realistic. Why don't you analyze it? Get on that. And actually, you know, for those who are more quant oriented, you know, who are who are looking for ways to take to to merge fundamental investment with quant investment, this is your opportunity because you can you can take the data on how your human fund managers have been running money and create an algorithm version of the human. And what you do with that, you know, is up to you. But if nothing else, it can help you to bring more quant into the equation and, and help the human know when they're likely to be going off the rails or making, you know, too much, too many discretionary choices. Um, I don't think that I, most of the industry is not at that stage yet you've got your quants over here and your fundamental guys over here and you know only a few firms have an actual sort of copacetic uh relationship between those two groups but i think that's where it's going you know the give it 10 years 10 more years um i think there's going to be a lot more of that and and this data is crucial to that you know but people are not they don't realize the value that they're sitting on if they're the manager or the power that they have if they're the allocator to say, look, you don't even have to give me, the, if I'm the allocator, you don't have to give me your daily holdings data if you're worried about that and that sounds risky to send it. You don't have to send it all over the market. That's fine. Give it to these people here. They're trusted. They're, they're going to show you analysis on it that's going to be helpful to you. And they're going to show me the very tip of the iceberg. And that's it. Um, that... I, I think that's like, it, it, well, I think that that is going to change a lot of things in this industry, that, that presence of daily data, and people just don't realize it yet. Well, Clara, I, I love your um, audacious goals to change the industry. And I think I'll just layering on top, like how much sense it makes for both managers and allocators to have this data. Um, 
it just, it seems inevitable that you're going to be successful. So um, thank you so much for telling us all about it. And um, is it, let me just give you one last handoff. If people want to know a little more about Asetia, where should they go? Yeah, we have lots of uh, research papers and case studies and interesting blog posts uh, on our website, which is Essentia-analytics.com. Essentia is spelled like essential without the L. So Essentia-analytics.com. And yeah, there's lots. If you're interested in behavioral finance, if you're looking for a reading list, if you're looking for a podcast list, obviously uh, compounders being uh, important, high in the list. Um, Yeah, check it out. Thanks so much. We'll be following this firm very closely over time. Uh, Thanks again for being on Compounders. It's a pleasure. Thank you.